Hi, I'm Jonathan Booth. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Management. Uh, I teach a summer negotiations course, but during the school year, I uh, teach a course on conflict and conflict management, and it's entitled The Dark Side of the Organization. So um, I want to welcome you to the London School of Economics. Welcome. Uh, I also want to note that the Department of Management is uh, is hosting this event tonight, and uh, we want to welcome uh, Stuart Diamond. Thanks for coming. Stuart, if you don't know, uh, is a negotiations expert. He teaches at the Wharton School of uh, Management at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he actually teaches the most popular course, I think, for the past 13 years in negotiations and has just written a book entitled Getting More. And tonight's uh, talk is entitled Getting More, and we want to welcome you. Also, I wanted to let you know this: the talk is for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have a 20 to 25-minute minute Q&A session. Uh, what I, I would like you to do is when we go, get to that point of the evening, please raise your hand. I'll point to you and we'll have a steward bring a microphone to you. Okay. And then afterwards there will be a book signing and I ask you to please let Professor Diamond leave the auditorium before we all leave. Okay. So thanks so much and I look forward to the presentation. Thank you. I thought the speech was four hours. Uh, uh, anyway, all right. Um, I, in preparing for this uh, this talk in the last uh, few months, and then in coming here to London, I noticed a few things. I noticed that British Air was on strike. I noticed that the postal people were striking or trying to strike. I noticed that BBC was going on strike. And then I noticed that the underground wasn't running. And I tried to figure out what's going on here. Uh, and then, of course, I go to the airport and I see parents hitting their kids. I understand there's a terrorism alert. Uh, I see conflict everywhere. And I'm trying to figure out what it is that's going on that we live in a dysfunctional world, that conflict seems to rule our day, that the, the order of business is let's fight them, let's be as tough as possible. And it occurred to me in teaching in the last 20 years, little by little, that most of the reason why we have these conflicts is that most of the instructions given to people throughout their lives about negotiation are wrong. That they learn to win or to win-win. They learn to have power or leverage, they learn to explore their alternatives to agreement, and they don't learn the kind of things necessary to meet their goals. And so we live in a world in which people, by and large, do not meet their goals, whether it is settlements in the West Bank or whether it is uh, people dealing with each other in school. So in the last 20 years, I've taught 30,000 people in 45 countries, from country presidents to administrative assistants and everything in between. And I read their 500,000 pages worth of journals, and I combined that with my own research and work in many companies that I've run in various countries. And I found that the things that you have seen to negotiate are are not only not right, 
but the things you should do are counterintuitive. Uh, and so what I want to do tonight is I want to, go, want to go over with you what's wrong with the way we deal with each other and what's right. And I did want to suggest to you that this is what happens when you do it right. I taught a course at Google. The next week somebody made a billion dollars. The average MBA student I teach during the semester, and as you know, students don't have very much money, make or save $10,000. The average executive makes or saves a million dollars. And it's not just in money, it's in all kinds of things in your life, which includes I had three women in my class from India who could have their own arranged marriage in India using course tools with their parents' blessing and after the wedding invitations had been sent out. Dad paid for the wedding with the new guy. And also, four-year-old, not the least of which, brushes teeth and goes to bed. And so these tools are designed to be used in any situation, from work to travel to conflict among nations to kids to your everyday life. And I want to explore the importance of the subject with you and how to use it right, beginning right now. So the first thing I wanted to mention to you is that negotiation is the basic process of human interaction. Every time you have an interaction with somebody else, there's negotiation going on. Conscious, unconscious, verbal, nonverbal, you can't get away from it, you can only do it well or badly. Uh, and so there's no such thing as avoiding negotiation. Avoiding negotiations means you stand on the sideline, they score goals all day long. Now that doesn't mean you have to give yourself over to actively negotiating in your lives, but it does mean that the more conscious you are of what goes on around you, the better interventions you can make. There's a maxim about the difference between expert and non-expert knowledge. A non-expert looks at a field and sees flat land. An expert looks at the same field and begins to see little peaks and valleys, little bits of relief. It takes no more time or energy or money for the expert to collect a greater amount of information from that landscape than the non-expert, but the expert can make much greater use of that information to pursue opportunities or minimize risks. And so the first thing I want my students to do is to become exquisitely more conscious of what's going on around them when they're driving down the street, when they're walking down the street, when they're dealing with their friends. There is always negotiation going on, somebody is consciously or subconsciously trying to persuade somebody of something. There is no difference between negotiation, communication, sales, persuasion. It's all the same. If done right, the same process should be used. And so therefore, this is something which should affect everything in your lives. Uh, next point I want to make by way of looking at this field is that everybody benefits from coaching whether you're expert or non-expert. In fact, the more expert you are at this subject, the better off you're going to learn because you have a better uh, structure in which to put things. Uh, and so everybody ought to learn something important here. Imagine Michael Phelps without a coach. And so you will all be able to get better no matter where you are in negotiations. 
And this is particularly important because the difference between success and failure in negotiation, in business, in life is very, very small. A look, a turn of phrase, what you wear, how you address somebody else. I like a baseball analogy. If you're a 280 hitter in baseball, and you get one extra hit every nine games, one extra hit every 36 at-bats, you become a 310 hitter in baseball, and that's worth two things to you. One, a place in the Hall of Fame, and two, $10 million more a year in compensation. And so, contrary to swinging for the fences and getting it all done at once, I'm just trying to get one extra hit every nine games. I'm trying to be a lot more incremental. If they had built one replicatable, scalable factory in the Middle East 30 years ago, they'd have a fine state of Palestine now instead of trying to do everything at once. If they had built one replicatable health clinic in the United States, it wouldn't have taken 20 years to get a health program. And so what you see here, and I'm, I'm struck by the, I didn't count the number of goals that the, the two parties here have in the government, but was it hundreds? Was it dozens? They're never getting done, all of them. There's too many goals, too many constituencies to please, too many expectations that are not going to be met. Rather, I want to pick one thing or two things that are practical and implementable, and from there, I want to do one thing at a time. And that's one of the things that people do wrong. Very small changes. Most of these tools look like this to people because they are, in fact, invisible. Once you see them, you always see them, but before that, they're just not there at all. I also wanted to mention to you that effective negotiation starts from an attitude you have toward other people and the negotiations you do. If you think that you're going to get a war or a conflict in a negotiation, you will get one. And so that means that if the mayor of London and the people who struck on the underground view each other as enemies, they will fight each other forever. And if they have a different attitude, uh, they won't. I want to tell you a little story. Some years ago, a colleague of mine uh, went to try to settle a an impending strike at General Electric where the, with the Teamsters, which are you know, burly truck drivers. And he went to see them and he said, I just want to ask you one question. How can you improve the competitive advantage of General Electric? Now this was an astonishing question to them. First of all, no management representative had ever asked them their opinion, yet they were the ones in the trenches. And second, the message was, well, if we improve the profit picture of our employer, we'll get some of it. And among the astonishing things they said was, you know, when we deliver light bulbs, when the guy's there with his clipboard checking everything off, we'll look in the warehouse and see who he's ordering from other competitors, and we'll let you know who he's ordering from and how many. And second, if he's ordering some, uh, we'll ask him why. 
Now that seems to be a different model than you see in public disputes today, and that of course is because of the attitude which, with which the parties approach each other. One more thing that I want to mention to you by way of thinking about this subject is you need to be yourself when you negotiate, that your credibility is the most important thing you have, and if somebody tells you that you're too tough or too accommodating or too this or too that, they don't know what they're talking about. The biggest asset you have is your credibility, and people want you to be straight with them. I think that George Bush won the election in 2004 because he said, you might not agree with where I stand, but at least you know where I stand. And so that means that if you're really aggressive, you want to come to a meeting and you want to say to the other party, you know, I'm really aggressive. If I'm over the top, just slap me around. I want to take away the issue. That if I'm really accommodating, I want to say to the other party, you know, I, uh, I tend to give away the store when I negotiate, and so I'll probably give away too much in this negotiation, and I often have to renege later. If this gets out of hand to me, would, would you let me know? Um, and now I've given you all the responsibility for protecting the fairness in this negotiation. That also means that if I go to another culture, I might say, you know, uh, uh, I don't know your culture very well. I'll probably make mistakes and insult you in the next two days. Every time I make a mistake, could you please advise me? I've turned every instance of potential conflict into an instance of collaboration in which you are my advisor. And so, actually, great negotiators have a firm grasp of the obvious, and they tend to say it. So if you're not getting along with somebody else, you want to say, we're not getting along. How come? If somebody asks you a personal question, or how much do you have to spend if you go buy a car, you might want to say, I don't feel like I want to tell you right now. And what that does is it adds to your credibility and it makes you more effective at negotiating. This is a learned skill. Anybody can become a great negotiator. And this is one of the, um, uh, the quotes from one of my uh, former students. So I have in the book Getting More 12 strategies that are invisible taken as a group and individually to those who don't know them and I want to go through them at least the first few one by one and show you what's wrong with the way people do things and how to do it differently and so let's take the first one goals not power what you learn when you're growing up is you need to use leverage against other people. You need to get an advantage over them so they'll do what you want. You need to have more power. You need to have sanctions uh, if they don't do what you want. And that's how people often negotiate, whether it's with Korea or whether it is the people you deal with in business. And I have found over the years, through thousands and thousands of iterations, that that's simply wrong. Let's think about this. When, you tr when somebody tries to exert power over you, what happens? The first thing that happens is you try to fight back. 
If you're, an, if you're an employee, there's malicious obedience. If you're in the Middle East, there are suicide bombers. If you're a kid, you're kicking and screaming on the floor. People hate it when other people try to exert power over them. It doesn't work. How, how are we doing with North Korea and Cuba? We're doing what, the, what I call the Alamo strategy is. You know what the Alamo strategy is? You know what the Alamo? They fought to the last man standing. That's what people do. They fight to the last man standing. And so if you want to exert power over them, assume you've got to kill them all. And you've got to fight him to the last man standing. And it's not very effective. In addition to that, people who overuse their power are often thought of as extreme and people come after them. And so therefore, power is overrated and overstated as a negotiation tool. Uh, rather, I want to think about what my goals are. I don't care who has more power. You can be right. You can have more power. What I want to know is how do I meet my goals? What do I want at the end of the process that I don't have now? And that's a much better way of thinking about negotiation. And that also means that the, that the advice, look at your alternatives to agreement. Batten the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. If you think it's a good idea when you're dealing with somebody else to think about your alternatives to agreement and invoke them, next time you go out on a date or with your significant other, in the middle of dinner, pull out your little black book and you say, you know, if this doesn't work out, I got these alternatives to agreement. See what happens. <laughs> People don't like that. They don't like it if you pursue alternatives to agreement. And so what I want to do is I want to find somebody that I think I can negotiate with successfully. I want to take it as far as I can. And this raises a couple of really interesting points about the difference between competition and collaboration. Studies show that people who are collaborative with their enemies, with others, get four times as much as people who are not. That means they get twice as many deals and the deals they get are worth twice as much, which means to say that you can still get an agreement between BA flight attendants and BA management, but it's not going to be very good. And it's not going to be very good over the long term because people who don't collaborate with each other don't find a way to expand the pie, to have a relationship, and to make this in a way where we can get more tomorrow than today. There's even a stronger way to look at this. Uh, uh, this is, of course, the London School of Economics. The patron saint of economics is Adam Smith. Uh, what did Adam Smith say, at least how he's been interpreted, is I want to pursue my interests uh, exclusively, you know, be, and that is competitive. And of course, if that's the case, then you don't end up giving other people very much. And when you're in a negotiation and you don't get very much, what do you do? You don't give them very much back. Let's take another way of looking at this. John Nash, who won a Nobel Prize for what I'm about to tell you and was characterized by Russell Crowe in the movie A Beautiful Mind, 
proved mathematically what Swiss philosopher Jean Jacques Rousseau opined in 1755. He found that when parties collaborate, the overall size of the pie expands to such an extent that each party gets much more than they could possibly get alone. And the good example he used was four hunters each can only catch a rabbit. But when they collaborated, they could eat, they could together get a deer. And that is the difference between collaboration and the way you see most of the world acting. And so the first point is, I want to find a way to meet my goals, and that means I want to see what I want at the end of the process by collaborating with you and go after it. Why don't people meet their goals? They don't meet their, and, and, uh, they don't meet their goals because people get emotional. And when people get emotional, they forget about their goals and they think about revenge and retaliation and emotion is the enemy of negotiations and that's the second thing that I wanted to mention to you about the economic theory of negotiation which is rational actors and reasonable people and that's also bunk the more important negotiations are to the parties the more emotional they are and that means world peace, a billion dollar deal, or my eight-year-old son wants an ice cream cone. Those are all exactly the same. And so that means that if I don't think about the emotional needs of the other party, then I can't possibly calm them down enough to listen to me, and people are emotional, they don't listen, or to have a deal with me. And so if you look, for example, let's take something in the news. How about Israel and Palestine and the settlements issue, which is now again derailed Middle East talks. Settlements are completely irrelevant. They're irrelevant because they take up less than 5% of the land in the West Bank, and Israel has already tentatively agreed to give the Palestinians back the 5% through land swaps. And so why isn't it that every time somebody opens their mouth, the Palestinians don't say, where's my state? That would be relentlessly meeting your goals because people get emotional. And that also means I don't like win-win very much because since most negotiations cause people to get emotional, if I'm feeling emotional, I want something. I want some empathy. I want to be valued. I want an apology. I want a concession. Don't talk to me about win-win. Give me something that makes me feel better. I have a problem with my school taxes. I don't want to see your spreadsheets. I want you to make me feel better. So don't talk to me about win-win. First talk to me about how I feel. And that's the second thing that's wrong with the way most people negotiate. I want to give people emotional payments. That means that in your relationships, uh, that you want to, if somebody is emotional, you want to listen to them. You want to you want to calm them down by 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 empathizing with them. Um, I uh, I told my class at Wharton that I uh, tell my wife that she's right even when she's wrong uh, to preserve marital harmony. 
And then I thought, well, that's not fair. I ought to tell my wife I said this to the class. So I went home and I said to my wife, you know, uh, I told the class today that I tell you that you're right even when you're wrong to preserve marital harmony. And you know what she said? That'll work. <laughs> um, the, 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 the notion of people wanting to get some feeling that they're valued is a key driver in negotiations. But what do people do in strikes in various parts of the world? They blame each other. And when you blame somebody, they fight back. I was in Korea recently, and I had dinner with the president, Samsung, who was the trade minister who negotiated the trade agreement with the U.S., and I was involved in government there still. And I said, so, you got this argument over this boat with North Korea. What's the logical extreme? What's going to happen eventually? You're going to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it, and eventually somebody is going to blow somebody else up. So is that not where we're headed with conflict? After the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Albert Einstein said, there is no secret and there is no defense. And so all this stuff that we're going through here about protecting the world from nuclear energy through blaming and force, it's not gonna work. We're all headed to the same conclusion. After Israel bombed the Iraqi reactor uh, 30 years ago, I was a young journalist, and I called up everybody I could find who worked on the Manhattan Project uh, to build the atomic bomb. They were all in their 80s at the time, and I said, so what technology and structures exist to protect the spread of nuclear weapons? And almost if they were in, all in the same room, they said to me, wrong question. You want to protect the spread against the spread of nuclear weapons, feed people, clothe them, educate them, give them medical care. And that answer is the same today as it was 30 years ago. And so that is really key to be thinking about in terms of how do you persuade people. You have to actually give them something to get something back. And so that is key to getting what you want. Life is about quid pro quo, whether it's a relationship or a company or a country. And the more you trade things with people and the more you give them, the more you give back, get back. If it's, you're not sure about the trust situation, you do it incrementally. But what I want to do is to try to meet other people's needs. With my eight-year-old son, what we do is we know that he doesn't have a lot of power and kids don't like the fact that adults can boss them around. And so we say, Alexander, why don't you pick all the restaurants that we go out with from now on if we can stand the restaurants. We're not going to McDonald's every day, but pick the restaurants. He likes to pick the restaurants. We give him a choice of toothpaste. We give him a choice of everything we can possibly give him. Because later, when we ask him to do something and he doesn't want to do it, we say, didn't you have a lot of choices before? Don't we get to pick sometimes? And he's okay with that. And a lot of parents say, well, I don't want to just be bribing my kids I don't want to have to trade them. Well, you know what? I deal with the world as it is, not the world you might hypothesize around. And so if I tell my kid, I want you to listen to me 
unquestionably, no matter what I say, I don't want a kid with that lack of critical thinking. I want my kid to evaluate the trays in front of him and to make choices that are useful for him. Which brings me, I think, to the most important point that I want to make tonight. And I want to introduce it by showing you a four-step definition of negotiation and to show you how powerful the third step is. The first step is the process of getting other people to do what you will them to you to do. And as I mentioned to you, violence and force generally doesn't work. It causes retaliation, and when it does work, it's very, very expensive, and it's not self-enforcing. The Allies could do whatever they wanted in the Middle East with $20 trillion. But we don't have that kind of money, and there are probably better ways to do it. And so force doesn't work very well. The second thing is, okay, how about to get them to think what you want them to think? And that's interest-based negotiation. That's better. Almost everybody stops there. But as I mentioned to you, it doesn't really capture the essence of what goes on in negotiations is that people get emotional and you have to be able to deal with that. So now I want to show you where the action really is in negotiations. And if you remember nothing else from tonight, I'm hoping you will take this with you. The third and fourth steps where almost nobody goes is where where you need to go as individuals and as a society in negotiation. And that is to perceive what you want them to perceive. Now you're involved in their subconscious. And finally, to feel what you want them to feel. Almost nobody goes there. Imagine labor management uh, 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 disputes or sports disputes or the U.S. with Iran or England with some of its uh, enemies who say to the other parties, you know, before we uh, sit down to formally negotiate, how do you guys feel? Are you happy? You like pizza? What are your favorite movies? But that's what's required to make the human connection in order for them to feel that they should give you something back. Studies show that when people make a human connection, the other party is six times more likely to give you what you want than if you don't. And I want to tell you a little story of, an, of something that you're familiar with. A couple of years ago, in February 2008, I was called uh, by Ari Emanuel, who's a prominent Hollywood agent, a role model for Entourage, and the brother of uh, then White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel, about the writer's strike in Hollywood. And they'd been on strike for three months, they had a conflict for a year, and he wanted me to give some advice to John Bowman, who was the chief negotiator for the Writers Guild. It was a Tuesday afternoon, and, and he was meeting Bowman for a, a breakfast on Wednesday morning with some of the studio heads and their representatives. And Bowman wanted to know, how do I position and prioritize my substantive issues? And I said to him, forget about the substantive issues. Here's what you need to do. You need to go there on Thursday morning and you need to say, hi, how are you guys doing? Are you happy? We're not happy. Are you making any money? We're not making any money. If you had to do this process differently, how would you have done it? 
It took 30 minutes to restart the negotiations and end the strike. It took two days to get an agreement. There's two things I can say for sure about this. First, it's not rocket science. And secondly, unless you already know it, it's completely invisible. And so you want to think about the notion of who are these people. And I want to just put something up here, which is the most important model I have, which should surprise many of you. A lot of people think that the negotiation is about this blue triangle up here. The facts, the evidence, the substance. I'm a finance person. I'm an economist. I'm an environmental lawyer. I'm an architect. Studies show that less than 10% of the reason why people reach agreements has anything whatsoever to do with the facts. Fully 50% has to do with, or more than 50%, have to do with whether the people like each other or trust each other, and another almost two-fifths has to do with the process they use. Do they talk constructively to each other? How do they make commitments? And if you think that this part up here, the substance, the facts I have, is a negotiation, sadly, you're going to be right more than you're persuasive. The truth is only one argument, and the facts are only one argument. And that's very hard for people who are substantively based, like doctors, engineers, or financiers, economists, to accept, but it's absolutely true based upon a ton of research. Question, how come O.J. Simpson was found not guilty by the criminal jury in Los Angeles despite a yard of DNA evidence, including his blood at the site? How could he possibly have been found not guilty? The answer is that the inner city jury, who was a decision maker, didn't like or trust the prosecutor and the racist witness, Mark Furman. And if they don't like you and they don't trust you, they won't hear you. Just because you're yakking at them and they're going, uh-huh, 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 doesn't mean they hear a word you say. And when people get angry, uncertain, mistrustful, they physiologically hear less. And the first thing I've got to do is get people ready to listen to me. And this is the beginning of the most important thing you've got to do, which is focus on who the other party is. The pictures in the head and their perceptions. How do I know where to even begin to persuade you unless I know what your perceptions are? What that also means is that the characteristics and perceptions of the people sitting across from you or the person sitting across from you so dominates every other part of the negotiation. It's not even worth talking about race, religion, gender, culture, creed, etc. unless you know who's sitting across from you. If you bring three people to a negotiation on Monday, and so do they, and you bring a fourth person on Tuesday, it's a completely different negotiation. Even with the same six people, somebody may have had a bad commute, somebody's kid might be sick, and so the first thing I've got to do is find out the perceptions and emotional temperature of the person sitting across from me, even if, and probably especially if, I'm married to them. And so I want to think about who they are. And that also means that people are all different. 
There is no one size fits all. In researching my book on negotiation, I had the opportunity to review at least the titles and a lot of the books of the 2,200 books written on negotiation since 1950. And I found some really interesting titles, like How to Negotiate with the Japanese. <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? Well, it presumes all Japanese are the same. What? You're negotiating with 130 million Japanese? How interesting. You are negotiating with one or two people who may be more or less the same as the cultural norm. Jack DeJoya, the president of Georgetown University and one of my former students, did a study after 9-11 and he found out that 62% of Arab Americans were Catholic, not Muslim. Now, whatever one might say about the Muslim religion, 62% of Arab Americans had decided they would embrace a Western religion. So instead of declaring open season on all Arab Americans after 9-11, they might have found, tried to find out the U.S. government, airlines, etc., which ones had actually embraced Western culture. You may have more in common with somebody in Mongolia whose language you don't even speak than somebody who sits next to you in class. And so it is the pictures in their heads that are the most important. Let me make this a more dramatic, a dramatic example here. If you were a Jew in Poland in 1944 and you thought the Nazis were monolithic and you met Oskar Schindler, you lost your life. Because you didn't realize that Schindler, although a Nazi, was willing to save your life, but you never asked him because you thought all Nazis hated Jews. What a source of competitive advantage it is to know who's really the same and who's really different. And you can't so much tell anymore by external trappings. And so to say we have the unions over here and the management over there is not a true statement that will get you anywhere in negotiations because we have a bunch of people over here with a cultural average and a bunch of people over here with a cultural average but we got some people on each side who are similar enough to begin a worthwhile negotiation by figuring out the pictures in their heads and to meet each other's needs and a big mistake that people have made since you were young since I was young and for the last million years is to assume all groups are monolithic and the same. And so that is the next, the most important point I've got to say to you, and it's critically important. You are the least important person in the negotiation. The most important person is them. I want to mention, how much more time do I have? few more minutes. Okay, I want to mention a couple other things for you to be thinking about in terms of, I could, you know, talk all night, but, but a, a couple other things that you should be thinking about here in terms of how you deal with others. There's a lot of controversy today about people who are different. There's controversy in the U.S. There's, we don't want people to wear burkas in France, etc. And this is really a shame. 
because studies have shown that differences are profitable. And there are some really astonishing studies along these lines. The first is that studies have shown that work teams that have widely varying perceptions from each other within the team generate three times as many marketable ideas than teams that are homogeneous. And these are work teams where people have different perceptions who disagree with one another. So if somebody says to me with some frustration, you know, we're different from each other, I'm going to say, that's great, we're going to make money. Homogeneity, not profitable. Differences, profitable. We need some people over here who disagree with us so we can make some money around here. That's study number one. Study number two, more dramatic, done in the U.S., found that the introduction of diversity to a city, that for each 10% of diversity that's introduced, net income of the population goes up 15%. That is an astounding figure if you think about it across the society. It is no magic that Silicon Valley formed outside of San Francisco. San Francisco is the most diverse city in the United States. I've not yet heard anybody make the argument that gay marriage is profitable, but I bet you that it is. And so I want to think about you know, valuing people who are different and different perceptions from me, finding out those perceptions and dealing with them. Uh, I want to mention just one or two other things. The rest is in, are in the book. But I want to talk for a moment about communication. Everybody knows, yeah, 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 you have to communicate with other parties. But the thing is, most people don't in a way that will result in better agreements. What's a good example? Negotiations aren't going well. Somebody walks out whether it's a marriage, uh, a relationship, or a business deal, or a political deal. What is the message when somebody walks out of a negotiation? It is, I don't even value you enough to give you the time of day. And so you turn a bad situation into a worse situation. Because the alternative is no deal, litigation, or war. And so I want to be in there pitching and finding out how we can make this deal better, which means that the best negotiators are dispassionate and continue to ask for information. The right answer to the statement by somebody else is, I hate you, I'm going to destroy you, you're no good, is tell me more. Because that gets you the information necessary to persuade them of where you want them to go. And across billions of conversations, that makes the world a better place. So I want to just show you one or two other slides, and then we'll open up to questions. This, of course, is just a taste. But uh, one of the things I want to show you is I put this up on the board and I ask people to write down what they say in two words or less, and I get hundreds of answers. What does that mean? It means what you perceive may not necessarily be what they perceive. And the negotiation field has changed from a law course to an economics course to a psychology course. 
and the pictures in their heads are much more important, which means that there's something called fundamental attribution error. It means that you think everybody else reacts just like you do. And so when you begin to have a conflict with somebody, ask yourself, what am I perceiving? What are they perceiving? Is there a mismatch? If so, why? And you will see a tremendous and surprising difference in how people perceive the same things. I also want to show you uh, one other slide for you to think about, uh, and that is this. Here is my course summed up in three questions. One, what do I want at the end of the process I don't have now? Two, who are these other people? And three, given the first two, what will it take to persuade them? What are their hot buttons? And their hot buttons might be anything they value in their lives, which is to say, uh, if I'm dealing with a business situation, maybe I can help uh, and give advice to somebody's son or daughter about getting into college. The CEO of a major company in Philadelphia once told me that the most important thing he ever did for his major business client in a 20-year business relationship was to pick up the client CEO's mother-in-law at the Philadelphia airport one Saturday night. And so I'm going to look for other people's hot buttons as broadly as I can. And finally, uh, I want to just put this up there. It's the last one here, which is, let's see if I can find it. Here we go. And that is uh, to make a list. There's a lot of tools here. There's a lot of tools in the book. And if you buy a book, we're going to give you a little card with all these tools and a cheat sheet on the back of it uh, that you can take with you and prepare for any negotiation that you might have, but you take the list with you and you share it with everybody you can, including those people you're negotiating against. I'm dealing with somebody and they think I'm a more skilled negotiator. You know what I do? I give them all my notes because my job is to get what I want by making them better, by taking them from the pictures. Uh, I also want to mention before I show you this, that none of these tools work all the time, but the title of this book is Getting More, Not Getting Everything. And so what I want to do is take them from the pictures in their heads to my goals one step at a time finding out where they are and leading them step by step. And so that's my little presentation for tonight. And you'll find that all of you will get more if you start now and you start doing these things that I've suggested to you. Thank you very much. I'll take any question on any subject, but I might not answer it. Great, thank you so much. Uh, what I'll do is I'll open the floor up and I will point to those who are raising their hands and then the stewards will come by with the mic right here in the front. Good, e good evening, uh, very interesting. Um, I was a student here in 1996. Um, I'm a, a lawyer, I've been a lawyer for over 10 years. Um, consistently I've seen, um, and it 
goes across the range of experiences of lawyers from newly qualified to highly experienced, they will revert to uh, a bargaining power statement. In, in effect, they're saying, well, you, you can't do that because we're simply more powerful than you. Or we, you're not in the driving seat. In your experience, given a negotiation can be about quite a few goals, how can you manage that, I suppose ideally from the point of view of the, the party that is the perceived weaker party? The first thing I want to do with people who are more powerful is I want to tell them they're more powerful. I want to praise them. I want to thank them for being powerful. I want to soften them up a little bit, okay? Because people who have a lot of power, they feel ego-driven about their power. And I want them to feel they have more power. When a policeman stops me, I want to apologize for what I've done. Because these tools tap into fundamental tenets of human psychology. When a bureaucrat is hateful to me, I want to thank them for standing on their feet. When a waiter is mean to me, I want to commiserate with them having a bad day. And so I want to first deal with what I think the pictures in their heads might be. The second thing I want to do is I want to see if I can expand the pie. They want X for me, and I say, why don't you want 2X? And they say, what do you mean? And I say, we haven't talked about cross-selling. We haven't talked about intangibles. We don't know yet what I can give you. So how do we know this is the best deal? And if they say, this is the deal I have for you, I'm going to say, you want to take the chance that this isn't the best deal you can do. And later people find out that you could have done a better deal. Are you sure you want to do that? And the more difficult they become, the quieter I want to be. And that's a way to deal with hard bargainers and bad behavior, is to deal with standards, uh, ways of doing things that people accept. And I want to plant that seed of doubt, particularly in front of third parties. Somebody doesn't return my phone calls, I call them every day. I keep a list. At the end of a week, I write them an email and I say, I apologize. There must be something wrong with me because my phone calls didn't get returned. What can I do differently? Most people can't stand the weight of that. And let me, let me bring up a painful subject to you. Well, maybe it's not so painful anymore. The best practitioner of dealing with hard bargainers in the last hundred years was Mahatma Gandhi. He took away India from the British Empire without ever raising his voice and ever raising a weapon. He just let Britain be extreme. And so what I want to do in negotiations is the more extreme they are, as extreme as they are, I want them to be more extreme. This is the other side of collaboration. I want them to get so extreme they drive themselves off a cliff. That's how Barack Obama won the election in the United States. Every time in the second debate, John McCain looked like he was going to go off and hit slug Obama, he just smiled and looked presidential. When McCain refused to shake his hand, no problem. And so that's how I want to deal with people who are very difficult. Uh, the, the, but, but I should say, this is not a Pollyanna then, way of negotiating. This is a 
tough-minded way of negotiating depending upon the situation. Yes. Um, I totally, re- I totally respect and uh, like your way of uh, talking about the you, uh, talking about making human connection and uh, looking at the human touch. But this defies the laws of nature, defies the laws of evolution. That is who and how we've been. Is that to survive you have to compete, and for survival you have to be the fittest. And so every time each species developed into a better one, or every time people became more powerful, or each country or each empire became stronger and stronger and got more resources, was they competed. They did not collaborate with the enemies. Because if they collaborate with the enemies, like I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today as human beings. Mm-hmm. Okay, we wouldn't be the where we are as human beings today because new technology was developed. And that was created by innovators who were different. If you want to have that uh, way of looking at things, you should, but here's what's going to happen. You will go it alone, I will collaborate with every one of your competitors, and we will buy you out, and then we will retire you. That's what will happen. Let me tell you a little story, okay, to think about how you collaborate with your enemies. In Sri Lanka, there were the Tamil Tigers rebel group, and they were killing people and so forth. So what did the government do? Contrary to what many governments do, which is kill them, the government invited anybody who wanted to come back to the fold and gave them unconditional amnesty. The number two person came back from the Tamil Tigers, and a lot of other people came back and didn't have any punishment. Two things happened from that. One, the problem got smaller because there were few rebels. And second, the people who came back, they told the government where the other guys were. And then the government went and got the other guys. Now, people think that Sri Lanka was a military victory, but it wasn't. It was a negotiated settlement. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't kill the last group of extremists. What I'm suggesting is you've got to separate the moderates from the extremists. You've got to deal with the ones who will deal with you, and they will fight your battles for you, which means that the United States has no business in the Middle East and Afghanistan. It doesn't know the countryside, it doesn't know the culture, the people who should be killing Arab extremists are Arabs, the people who should be killing Jewish extremists are Jews. And that means in in what you have mentioned is I want to find the people I can ally with and the others I don't. And so I can, among those people who are, quote, my enemies, find enough people who are like me to expand my resources without simply assuming that if they belong to a different group, they're my enemy. And that's how I want to look at the situation. Good evening. Um, my question uh, raises an important point that you pointed out to was um, about knowing your enemy. How exactly do you get to know the person in front of you, whether it's your mother or your boyfriend, girlfriend, or even someone that you're negotiating? Sure. The first thing you do is you ask them, and sometimes they'll tell you. If they won't tell you, you guess. 
If you guess right, they'll be happy. If you guess wrong, they'll tell you how stupid you are and give you information. Okay, that's number two. The third thing you do is you put yourself in the shoes of the other party and try to look at the world through their eyes. The fourth thing you do is you ask third parties. And all that stuff that you put together will begin to get you a, a window on who they are. You will find that people who are different from you, people who are even your enemies, will appreciate the fact that you try to understand them, even if you're wrong. And is it true with everybody? Absolutely not. But if people begin to do this, the world will be so much better, we don't need to worry about the rest of that. We'll be a long time getting there. The lady in the blue, yes. Hi, um, one of the 12 strategies is um, be transparent. So how transparent are we talking about? Where do we draw the bottom line? Could you give sure, us a sure. examples, please? Thank um, you. you release information and do things that bring you closer to your goals, and you don't release things that bring you farther from your goals. So for example, um, uh, I will not tell people my bottom line in a negotiation at the beginning of the negotiation, but at the end of the negotiation, if they want more than I can afford to pay, I'll tell them what I can pay. And so I want to, I will be, have different levels of transparency at different parts of the negotiation. When I see be, say be transparent, I mean everything I tell you is going to be real. I want to tell you what my goals are. I want to tell you what my needs are. Uh, and I expect the same from you. And if I don't get it from you, then I'm, I want to be very incremental. The first thing I want to do, for example, you go buy a car. You don't trust the car salesman. You don't tell them how much you want to spend in the first sentence. You say, you want to give me a fair deal. Well, what's a fair deal look like? Can we explore some ways in which these cars are valued? And if they say to me, don't you trust me? I will say, what? I just met you. I don't trust you. If you trust me, you're crazy. Okay, so transparency depends upon the level of transparency, certainly on the level of your relationship. But what I don't want to do is say something that's dishonest. That's what I mean for, you know, this is who I am. What you see is what you get. Transparency means here's what I can tell you. Here's what I can't tell you. Here's what I want. Here's what I don't want. What do you think about that? And that is very, very credible in negotiations. Okay, we have one more question or two more questions. This gentleman here. Yeah. Um, Given that uh, you were saying that um, negotiation is essentially a form of communication, I was wondering if um, you could, we could extrapolate that model and, and use it in other forms of communication. Um, into, well, for example, like uh, in a presentation, in a, um, a document, or even in a work of art. I mean, if that, well, <laughs> really what I'm getting at is 
whether you consider that you've used all your principles, your 12 invisible principles during this presentation. Absolutely, I did. The and the first thing I tried to do is persuade you that it was worth considering these things. And the first thing I did is I said this was a popular course at a similar school, that a lot of people had taken the course. I asked you to look around at the world and see if you're happy. All of those things try to get you in the mood to maybe consider what I was saying. So was your, was your emotional pain to me showing me your notes uh, well if you want to see my notes you can have my notes uh, and and anything that I have to uh, to show you except the book you have to pay for <laughs> that's your emotional payment I was, to me. I was getting to that <laughs> one last question in the back please and let me remind you to please allow uh, Stuart Diamond to um, exit the auditorium um, so that he can get situated uh, to sign the books. Okay, thank you. Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, I, I, I'm a PhD student here and I look at how justice and accountability is negotiated in peace processes. Um, and it's very difficult and I think it touches on your discussion on emotional feelings, morality and emotional. My question basically to you, and you can answer it with regards to justice issues or not, yes. um, is whether everything is negotiable and even morality itself and the basis of human rights, for example, is something that we can negotiate or if that itself is wrong. All right, that's a really good question, and of course, it's situational. It depends upon the situation. Clearly, everything is not negotiable to me. The life of my child is not negotiable. And so I'm not suggesting to you that everything is negotiable. I am suggesting to you that much more is negotiable than you think, and of the things that you find are negotiable, there are better ways to do it. And so when you talk about situational ethics, if I steal a loaf of bread and I'm a rich guy and I do it because I like to steal loaves of bread, should the justice to me be any different than if I steal a loaf of bread because my family is starving to death because somebody in the government made a mistake and didn't send me my welfare check. Okay, so you, it, it can't be so clear as that. Uh, let me mention a little story to you about this. I was in Kazakhstan one year and we talked to the Israeli consul and they had, were going to make a $50 million investment in a factory in Kazakhstan, which was a very big uh, deal in those days, and Israel decided not to do it because several inspectors in a nearby ministry wanted bribes, and he said Israel doesn't pay bribes. I said, well, how much in bribes, it was 12 inspectors, how much in bribes it was involved? He said $600. I said, so $600 in bribes, $50 million plan. So they each wanted three bucks more a month. I said, would you say these inspectors are wealthy, not wealthy? He said, they don't have what to eat. I said, so uh, why didn't you, did, did it ever occur to you that, uh, that in other cities there are things called expediters, there are other government officials and they help foreigners negotiate the bureaucracy when they want investments in New York City and London and elsewhere? He said, yeah. I said, so why didn't you just offer them a job? And he said, we didn't think of it. And I said, do you know why they asked for bribes? Because they didn't know how to ask for a job. Were they unethical? No, they weren't. 
So I want to look at every situation as different and evaluate it based on the information I get from that situation. And that's something that the world doesn't do very well. We lump groups together, we assume they're all the same, and we penalize them. And you'll find that in your own life, starting with what you do, you will do much better looking at one person and one negotiation at a time. Thank you. Great.